All right, let's uh, get into the book of Revelation. Do you have with you your little chart, your chapter outline of Revelation that we gave you a few weeks ago? Anything like this? Yes, no? I hope you do. Keep it in your Bible. And then on Wednesdays when we get together, we can uh, look it over. Well, once again, we are um, uh, coming up to that center section here from chapter 6 to chapter 19. That pretty much deals with the tribulation. All of that there on your chart. And uh, we're in tonight chapter 5. And so this uh, chapter 4 and 5, uh, the scene changes from earth to heaven. And in heaven now we have heavenly things. We have a vision of heaven. We have the vision of God on the throne. We have the vision of these four beasts and uh, 24 elders and what it is they're doing up there. And then we have uh, before us in chapter five, we have the vision here of the lamb. And we're going to be looking at that. And also a very special book called the seven sealed book. And so that's where we're going with this. Now, God willing, next Wednesday, we meet together. We're going to start in with the events of the tribulation. And I think you'll see that the uh, seven sealed book seems to uh, parallel what it is uh, coming. As the seals are opened, different events happening on earth. Um. I share with you that um, since the 70s, I've been studying, trying to study the book of Revelation, trying to understand it. I've read all kinds of books. I've listened to all kinds of sermons. I've watched videos as well. I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and I've spent a long time praying over the book, reading it dozens and dozens of times. And what I'm sharing with you is... Um, uh, I think uh, the the best outline I can possibly give you. Um, but um, I just want you to have that paper off to one side, the chapter outline, and this will really come into play as we get into those um, chapters 6 to 19 as we look at the, uh, the coming tribulation. Okay, now, as I mentioned... Um, our attention now in chapter 5 is about to center around a special book and a special lamb. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Let's ask the Lord to help us understand these things tonight. Shall we bow our heads and close our eyes? Our loving Father, once more, we give you the honor and glory and praise. We wish we had more heavenly lips to be able to worship you and sing your praises and sing your songs. But we have, um, uh, as they say, fettered lips, earthly lips. We, we have problems, Lord. And please, we pray in your mercy and kindness and your love for us that you would accept our, our thanksgiving, our praise. We ask you, please, Lord, to open our eyes tonight that we may see glimpses of truth tonight. That which you've prepared for us. Father, help us to understand chapter 5 of Revelation. Holy Spirit of God, please make the necessary applications to our hearts tonight to love you and to grow in faith. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 5, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne. This is God the Father. We understand this to be God the Father here, uh, sitting on the throne in heaven. We studied all about that last week in chapter 4. And in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book. Notice it's written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. Now, there's a little bit of a difference in these two words, a volume and a book, as we'll see. Uh, a volume deals with one subject, but a book deals with one or more volumes. In uh, Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, it says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. And so we have a book here. Now, many people think that uh, back in John's day, all they had were scrolls. And uh, it's very true that that was a very common method of recording data and information. They would, uh, they would write things out on papyrus or on animal skin. Uh, they would write things out very carefully. The, uh, the, the sheets of uh, papyrus or the animal skin could be sewn together to make a, a longer um, scroll, if you will, then it would be rolled up. Sometimes and often they would roll them from both ends, which was actually a clever invention because uh, if you wanted to, to check something a little more quickly, you know, you could go one way, back the other. And so that was a big invention on the scroll. Uh, however, um, from my research, I have found that they, they had, they possessed back in John's day, the similar type of books binding that we have. And now these, to me, these have scrolls beat hands down. You know, when we say, let's go to the book of Genesis. Now let's go over to Psalms. Now let's go over here to Galatians or something. Imagine if you had one big scroll, even if it had these handles. Imagine, eh, all the carpal tunnel sent we'd be getting from doing this. But this is great, you know. And then someone came up with the thumb tab index. That was another great invention. For those, you know, that don't want to memorize the books of the Bible in order. Little jab there. <clears throat> uh, but they could just go click, boom, and there they were. And uh, it's kind of an enviable uh, uh, little thing. I... I sort of like like it myself, but my Bible doesn't have it. So I'm forced to have to learn the books of the Bible in order. So there's a little bit of back and forth, but uh, not too much. However, this style of binding here, we usually call a book. Um, that's, that's what we understand to be a book. Now, back in John's day, according to my study, they actually had this type of binding as we know it today. Although... I still think most of their documents as a whole would have been in the scroll fashion. Um, sometimes they would take these scrolls uh, or books and they put them together and they would seal them and they would dribble some sealing wax over here and then they would take a signet ring and put it in there and then that would become a sealed document. The idea of sealing was nothing new. It's been around for thousands of years. You know, way back in the Old Testament times, they would do that sort of thing. If you've been around the church for any length of time, 
you'll probably have gotten a birthday card from me or uh, an anniversary card. Birthday, I do a lot of birthday and anniversary cards all through the year. I do hundreds of them. And so uh, you probably would have gotten one from me. And on the back side, after the card has been all licked, you know, and put all together, then um, I pour some sealing wax. And uh, then I have a special little signet with my initial in it. You know, and then it dries and we put that in the mail. A few years ago, uh, I guess is when I started doing that. And my first my first cards, I kept thinking, oh man, it's going to drive the postal people crazy as these things go through and catch in their machines because they use high-speed machines with, with letters and things, you know. And then here comes White's card. Oh, not another one. Boom. And, you know, sets off the bells and whistles. But it never did. We never got a nasty letter from the post office, nothing. And so I've seen some of the uh, the cards that they come through with the seal undamaged. So hooray for Canada Post. <laughs> They're able to put up with, uh, with my job of sealing wax and things. But this idea of sealing a scroll is nothing new. They would do this, of course, for important documents. Um, Usually it would be official government kind of documents that they would do this to, and then a courier would take it from point A to point B, and if the seal was disturbed or broken, then someone's neck would be in a sling because uh, it was an important document, not to be opened by anyone else, but by the intended party. And so here we have for us in chapter 5 and verse 1, we have a book with no less than seven seals on it. Seven seals. Now, I've done a lot of research uh, on this sort of thing, and I, I've read where um, some people claim that the seals were up here on the end of this big scroll. They're, they're calling it a scroll, and so they break the first seal, and it opens up the first portion, you get to read that. Then you break the next seal and open up to the next portion, you get to read that. But I don't think so. And um, one of the reasons why I don't think so is because of verse 2. In verse 2, John writes, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to... What's the next word? Open the book. And then after the book is opened, to what? Loose the seals thereof. You don't do that with a scroll. There's no way you can do that with a scroll. If, if this uh, seven-sealed book was a, some kind of scroll, I mean, how do you open it to begin with and then loose the seals? They never take that into account. Rather, what I think it is, is I think that it's this type of thing where it's opened and then the first seal is broken. You read the first portion, then the next seal is broken. You can read the next portion like that. That's personally what I think it is. And so... I base that upon study of um, printing and binding. And I find that back in 2000 years ago in John's day, they had that technology. It wasn't widely uh, spread, but uh, it was definitely in the Roman Empire. They had it. And based on verse two as well about opening the book and then breaking the seals. I think that it's referring not to a scroll, but to an actual kind of a book. You say, why are you uh, stressing the point? I don't know. Just thought I'd share it with you. You know, you never know. You might run into someone in a restaurant or something and get into a nice argument. 
with them. I'll give you a little bit of ammunition here. Anyhow, let's move on, shall we? Now, seven, it says seven seals here. Um, seven is often the number of completeness. And so the seven seals suggest that this book, whatever it is, is extremely important. It doesn't have just one seal. It has seven. Imagine if you got a birthday card from me and it had seven seals on it. Uh, maybe I should try that with someone. Well, it seems to be a very important book. And only the authorized recipient could open it. That's the thing about the seals. Is when, once it's officially sealed, only the authorized person can open it. By the way, if you're saved, did you know that you're sealed? Did you know that? According to Ephesians, it says we're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That goes back to the old days of shipping and receiving and importing and exporting where someone would go, a businessman would go to a far country or another town. He'd buy some goods. He'd have them packaged up and then it would be sealed. Be roped together and then it would be sealed with his signet ring. They were very common. All the businessmen had signet rings. He would seal it with a signet ring. And then it would be shipped to his port. And then the only man who could come and claim those goods was the man whose signet ring fit into that seal. And you and I, when we got saved, the Lord sealed us with that Holy Spirit of promise. And we're getting ready for transport home. So that's interesting. It's an interesting analogy, isn't it? And so anyhow, this seven sealed book is intended for the right recipient. Now, it appears as if this seven sealed book is full of important details because it's written uh, on the front and the back, inside and on the back. If you remember anything about the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone, the tables of stone containing the Ten Commandments were also written on both sides. Uh, those were very important tables of stone, I think you would agree. God wrote them himself. It dealt with the affairs of mankind. Exodus chapter 32, 15 talks about that. I think this book is even more important than that. Now, what was this book all about? Well, I'd like you to keep your finger there in Revelation chapter 5 and turn back to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Turn back to Isaiah. And uh, if you have a scroll tonight, <clears throat> we'll wait for you. Isaiah 29. Bear in mind that many, maybe most, of the um, symbols and things in the uh, book of Revelation can be found in the Old Testament. In many ways, the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. And in uh, Isaiah chapter 29, I found here something that I think is noteworthy. I can't say for sure that it's an exact, you know, comparison of verse to verse, but it's very uncanny. It's very interesting. And I direct your attention, please, to verse 11. Follow along as I read. And the vision of all, now that's the name of something, the vision of all, is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, Read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. It's just an interesting comparison 
between an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse. Here, back in Revelation chapter 5, we have this very important book with important information in it, and it's sealed, seven seals, and it's designed to be opened by the right recipient. Now, we find here that uh, in verse 4 that John the Apostle began to weep. He cried because no one was found worthy. Um, and and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to this. It's all right. We'll get to this. But um, he begins to, uh, to, to weep. And I think that that also lends significance to the book. You don't weep over just any old magazine. But you'd, there'd be books you'd weep over. For my wife and I, we have a book that's very um, precious to us. It's our wedding album. Um, back in the days when they would take pictures and they had to be developed before you could see them. Not like today, where they, they just go, Ch -ch -ch. let's take a look at that. Hey, let's do it again. Ch -ch. Yeah, we'll keep that one. Back in uh, 81, when we got married, we hired this professional photographer lady and oh, she did a wonderful job. And she was very experienced and told us how to stand and how to, you know, hold our hands and things like that. And she took a series of pictures and we had to wait a few weeks before we got to see the, uh, the book. Well, we took off on a honeymoon anyhow for a couple of weeks. So after we got back, the book was ready. And we have this book and we open this. It's velvet covered. The front is velvet. And it's about, uh, I think, about an inch and a half thick. And so, not the cover, but the whole book. And we open this, and it has all of these. The pages are like thick cardboard kind of pages. And we turn these, and uh, there's all of the pictures of us and the people that attended on that day. And to us, that's a very precious book. Well, if we had a fire or something, and we lost that book, that would hurt. Do you have a book or something that's precious to you that if you lost it, I mean like a thing, an inanimate object, if you lost it, ooh, you'd struggle. Often people do have something. And for my wife and I, that book, that wedding album, holds a lot of treasured memories. We, it's irreplaceable. It's not like those pictures are up in the cloud. We got no backups. That's it. And so that's a very important book to us. And if something happened to us, happened to the book, uh, boy, that, that would hurt. This book was so important, so precious. John knew what it was. And when he realized that no one could open it, the man actually wept. John wasn't a crybaby. He wouldn't just, you know, weep at a drop of a hat. This, this was a fully grown man, uh, maybe in his 90s. He was so experienced. He knew the Lord so much and, and he knew the, the ways of heaven. And when he learned that this book was stuck and wasn't able to be opened, he broke down and he wept. Now that's got to mean something. And I think it does. And I think that it lends to the importance of this book. Um, this book, I think, had to do with important things. In Isaiah, it talked about the vision of all. And I'm not sure, but it might be talking about the same kind of book. 
the vision of all. It has to do with important things, the important things of God, such as the putting down of Satan. Now that's something we're all interested in. You know, when Satan gets tossed into the lake of fire, I hope he skips like a stone out to the middle and then drops. When uh, two big angels grab his arms, his hands and his feet there and swing them, you know, I hope we get to say one, two, right? I hope we get to really have a build up three and let her rip boys. I really hope that it'd be something like that. The putting down of Satan for once and for all is going to be a happy day for us all, isn't it? And I think that this book has something to do with that as well. I think that it has to do with the salvation of Israel, which would have been so near and dear to the heart of John. I think that it has to do with Christ's kingdom on earth. Again, a, a big top priority for the apostle John and so John had some idea of what's involved in that book, I think. And when he found that it, it was stuck, no one could open it, I think that's what brought on the tears. That, oh no, you know, the plans have been short-circuited here somehow. Wow, a cause for tears. Well, um, Another reason we think the book deals with the triumph of good over evil is that as the seven seals are broken open, the whole tribulation unfolds chunk, 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 before us. And we'll see that. Anyhow, let's go back to verse 2 here. And I saw a strong angel. Now, a str saying a strong angel suggests that there are different or varying degrees of angelic strength. And it says here that... Um, he proclaimed with a loud voice. Now, I guess that's why God needed a strong angel rather than a wimpy angel because it, he needed a, a, a loud voice here, a proclamation for all to hear all over the, the world. In fact, if you look at verse 3, it talks about heaven and earth and under the earth. And I think the, uh, the loud voice of the angel was required. Now, he just doesn't cry out, but he actually makes a proclamation. A proclamation here. He makes a statement in the form of a question, and he says, who is worthy to do two things? Number one, to open the book. See in verse two, who is worthy to open the book? And number two, to loose the seals thereof. And so who is it out there? Who is it that can accomplish this great, all-important ministration who can come and open the book and break the seals. And so the search begins in verse three and no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And no human being was found worthy enough to open this book. Now men are made in the likeness of God, likeness and image of God. They, they have a certain amount of worth, but not enough. None of us here have enough worth to be able to open that book. I don't think the, the greatest saint in heaven, I don't think the greatest angel in heaven had sufficient worth to be able to accomplish this. And that's why we're told very clearly that no man in heaven nor in earth, saved or unsaved, no one 
No, I don't think even in the angels either. None of them, no man anywhere, had enough worth to be able to accomplish this task. Now you think of all of the great men in earth's history. Today, I think about three o'clock our time, President Trump was pronounced innocent of all of the uh, charges against him, the impeachment charges. Now, whether you like him or don't like him, you can't deny the fact that he is a great man in, you know, Earth's history here in the scheme of things. He is a great man. They, they say that the president of the United States is the most powerful single person uh, in all the world. Uh, and that may very well be true. The uh, nation of uh, America, the United States, seems to be still the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most influential nation, single nation in all the world. And uh, Donald Trump is not worthy to open this book. Oh, he may say he is, but he is not. He is not worthy. Any and all, in fact, if you took all of the earth's great leaders all of them, and somehow rolled them all into one man, they still wouldn't be worthy. I think it has something to do with the fact that we're all sinners by birth and by choice. And the Lord Jesus, of course, is not. Um, no one is able at this point to accomplish, nor is anyone holy enough. They're just not worthy to open the book to do this job. And so in verse 4, we have John weeping. And he, it says here that he wept much. Uh, the same way that we would weep if we thought the plans of God had been dashed. You know, uh, Grace Baptist Church is, is certainly not the only church in the world, but we are one of them. And we're not the only church in the world trying to reach souls and, and send out missionaries, but we are one of them. And we are concerned for the lost of the world. We're not concerned with trying to build a big social club. We're not trying to do that. If we, if we were, then we'd have a big worship band up here and we'd attract the people in by the hundreds, maybe the thousands. We're not trying to build a social club. We're trying to build a chaste bride for Jesus Christ. And to this day, the world is at enmity with God. And the more we try to blend in with the world, the more we become at enmity. You say enmity, what is that? It means to be an enemy is what it means. We don't want to be God's enemy. We want to be the friend of God. We want to be loving children of God. And sometimes that means drawing a line in the sand and taking a step back away from the world. And the world is doing it this way. All the people are flocking to that. Well, let them. We're going to do it God's way. You say, well, what if nobody comes? Well, that's, that's not our job. Our job is to serve the Lord. Our job is to do it God's way. You know, uh, invite God to church and he will bring the people with him. Our job is to uh, be his servants. It's not our church, is it? It's his church. Are we agreed on that? Yeah. That's why we didn't call this the people's church. <laughs> now, I'm not putting down any church that calls itself that. But uh, that was one of the, 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 the primary thoughts is that uh, this is not the people's church. This is the Lord's church. And so we settled upon the name of grace. One of the sweetest words in the English language, maybe heaven's language too. Grace. Wow. Love that word. But it's the Lord's church. It doesn't belong to us. So we got to do it God's way. 
And so we come to John here in verse 4, and we find that the poor old guy here is absolutely heartbroken. He is weeping because he believes that the plans of God somehow are being dashed. So we come to verse 5, and one of the elders, that's the 24 elders, remember them? Um, he comes to John. He saith unto, unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Wow. And so here we're told that the, basically the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, this is speaking of Jesus, he is the one who's prevailed. Um, you say, well, why did he have to prevail? Because he had to leave heaven's glory, come to this sin-cursed world. He had to be born through a, a virgin. He had to live a sinless life. He had to die on the cross, paying for our sins, shedding his blood, bearing the full wrath of God on him, on the cross. And then he had to die. And then he had to be raised the third day. This is how he prevailed. So in order for anyone, the search was made in verse 3, all through heaven, all through earth. What are they looking for? They're looking for someone who is worthy, someone who has prevailed. So in order for a man to prevail, to be worthy, to open that book, that man would, number one, need to be born without a sin nature. Number two, need to live his life without committing any sin, no bad thoughts, no bad words. He would need to shed his blood and die for the sins of all humanity, bearing on his body, on the cross, the full wrath of Almighty God. He would need to die and be raised again the third day. I mean, that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. It happened to Jesus. He is the only, only, only one who's been able to do that. So he has prevailed. That's what makes him worthy. That's why no man in heaven and earth or all men, take all of them in heaven and all of them in earth and roll them into one man, still can't do it. No amount of humanity can do what only divinity can do. It's only Jesus who has been able to do this and to prevail. I'm telling you, I'm so glad my salvation is not based upon the apostle Peter. When Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I am so thankful that my salvation is not based upon a man. It's based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah for that. Well, we come to verse six. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a, what is it? A lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. A few things we want to mention here. The lamb, I beheld and lo, those words, I beheld and lo, put tremendous attention on the object that John is looking at. John did not see this sight before. This is a brand new vision. 
In chapter 1, his vision of Jesus was nothing like this. His vision of Jesus, Jesus had, had uh, eyes of fire and, and, and white hair and so on. This is a lamb, like with its throat cut as it had been slain. That's how they would do it. They would cut the throat. And this is a brand new vision, and it suddenly appeared. John didn't see the lion spoken of here in verse 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He didn't see the lion. He saw a lamb as it had been sacrificed, slain. Now it says it has seven horns. Do sheep have horns? What do you think? The answer is yes. Yes. Some sheep have horns. The male sheep have horns on them. And they have two horns, in fact, and I happen to have one right here. Somewhere in the world tonight, there's a male sheep running around with one horn. I have the other. And um, this is an actual sheep's male sheep. They call it a ram, R-A-M. That's, that's what they call a male sheep, the ram. Okay? And that's the horn. It sits up there somewhere. Or maybe it's this side here. I'm not sure if this is a, a righty or a lefty. I don't know. I'll have to ask a, a sheep farmer someday. But... Um, the Jews used to make musical instruments out of these and they would call them shofars. Shofar is a Hebrew word meaning a ram's horn. And they hollow them out. I'm not very good. I'm really not very good. I shouldn't have quit my lessons. But they would make ram's horn out of them. And some of them are this size and some of them are quite long and they'd blow them and they would get quite a, quite a noise out of them. And so um, in the Bible, a horn is a sign of power. Excuse me. I'm allergic to sheep. Psalm 18 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Now having seven horns just might mean having all power. I know Jesus said in Matthew 28, All power is given unto me. Remember that in the Great Commission? All power. And here he is pictured as a lamb slain and he has seven of these on his head. Now it also says here in verse 6 that he has seven eyes. Now we've already looked at the seven eyes, the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit. By the way, Jesus is omniscient. There is nothing he cannot see. He sees us in public. He sees us in private. There is absolutely nothing that escapes his eyesight. Today we had two uh, policemen from the transit, from the buses. They came to our door. Apparently, uh, a couple of days ago, on January 31st, there was a stabbing on one of the buses. And um, these young hoodlums took off, and they think they ran this way. And so they asked if we would uh, share our cameras, our video. 
So we went back in the video on the 31st and sure enough, there's seven young men. One of them had a skateboard and they came right through our parking lot and went right around the building this way. And so the transit police spent some time here examining, doing some study and research and uh, examining the footage and, and so on. Um, the Lord sees more than we see. Anyone who comes around the building or comes in the building, our security is able to catch them. That's a good thing, folks. That's a good thing in case we get, you know, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing, a coyote, a shark. How about a shark in sheep's clothing? How about that? Have you ever seen one of those? It's got to look strange. But praise the Lord for our security that God's allowed us to have here. And the Lord Jesus sees more than that. He sees everything, 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 everything. He can see the thoughts and intents of our hearts. How about that? That's pretty good eyesight. When you can see the thoughts and intents of the heart. Well, verse 7. It says here, and he, that's Jesus, came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So here the son comes to the father and takes this amazing seven sealed book. Jesus, the crucified, the resurrected Lord of glory, now takes this seven sealed book from the hand of God the Father. So who is worthy? No angel, no man, only Jesus Christ. Now watch what happens in verse 8. <clears throat> and when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four elders, look what they do, fell down before the Lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Here the four beasts fall down. The 24 elders fall down. What do they do? They worship the Lord Jesus the same way they worship the Father. What does that tell you about the equality of Jesus and the Father? What does that tell you? They worship Jesus the same way. And they worshiped him with music and with prayer. Music is important and prayer maybe even more so. Our prayers, I think, are so important. Look at that verse again, please. Verse number eight, the, the 24 elders here, they have these, these vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. They fell down. Somehow in heaven, our prayers are used in worship for the Lord Jesus as well. It's very important that you and I have a very healthy prayer ministry. Do not go through a day. In fact, don't even begin the day unless you've spent some time in prayer with the Lord. Very important. Our prayers are so important. The elders are using them to worship Jesus Christ. And maybe our music as well. We need to be careful of the music. I know that in this church, we are considered a dinosaur in the eyes of modern churches around here. I know that. And they say, what? No drums? What? No guitars? Ah, we're out of here. What kind of dinosaur are you? And off they go. Let them go. Let them go. They're looking for something that we're not looking for. If we wanted screaming electric guitars, we'd have them. Don't you think? Sure, if we wanted blue lights and fog during our morning worship service, We'd have it, but we don't want that stuff. It's too much like the rock concert on Friday night or Saturday night, the worldly rock concert. So we're not interested in that. And the music is very important. 
<clears throat> it, it worries me sometimes when I see the young people with their little earbuds, you know, down to a little box. You just don't know what they're listening to. They can tell you, oh, I'm listening to gospel hymns sung by the Apostle Paul. That's what they tell you. But then they may change the channel and they can have some kind of do what to do whatever they, they want on that thing. You don't know. They won't tell you. They got the little earbuds. So I'm not saying that the earbuds are bad. I'm just saying we need to somehow be careful. We need heavenly wisdom these days because the wrong kind of music will take people away from Jesus Christ. That's what happens. So we come to verse nine and we find out a new song. It says in verse nine, and they sung a new song. Now it could be new in the idea of better. You know, um, when we get saved, we're supposed to be singing new songs. We're not supposed to be singing that old stuff that, you know, we sang before we were saved. And when we used to drink and smoke and be high on drugs and, you know, maybe curse the Lord and go to these parties and put a, a you know, a nickel in the jukebox or something, or <clears throat> the band would come out, you know, on a smoke filled stage or something and start playing away. We need to sing new songs. We need to change our musical wardrobe. Change it, turn it in, exchange it for something good. Good kind of music. Hey, I learned something. If you have uh, this Google thing, we got this Google round thing in our home and I can talk to it and I can say, okay, Google, and it lights up. And I can talk to it a little bit. I'm scared of it though, but uh, I can talk to it and I, and I say, play nice Christian instrumental hymns. And this lady's voice comes on saying, okay, here's the album, nice Christian instrumental hymns. <laughs> and away it goes. And I can, uh, I can choose what I want to listen to. So I learned that recently. So anyhow, I'm trying to be friendly to this thing. You never know if it's listening in on all your conversations either, right? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. And they sing a new song saying, and here's the song they sang in verses 9 and 10. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. That's their song. That's pretty good words, don't you think? I sure would like to hear the melody on that one but they sing this brand new song, new and different. Chapter four, verse 11. Here they are, um, the four and 20 elders falling down before the heavenly father on the throne. And this is what they sang. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And that's the song they sang for the father. Now this is the song they sing for the son. Isn't that interesting? They praise the Lord Jesus Christ. They praise him because he is worthy. He's prevailed. Remember, he's worthy to open the book. He's prevailed because he's redeemed us back to God. And look what that he's done. He's made us kings and priests. And one day we shall reign with him. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, 
uh, sorry, in 2 Timothy 2, 12, verse 12, it says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Now, by suffering, it doesn't mean, oh, <clears throat> boy, my throat feels a little scratchy today. <clears throat> That's not suffering for Jesus. Sometimes, you know, when we get together and, and I come up to you and say, hey, how are you? And sometimes you'll say to me, oh, well, I have this, this ache or this pain, or I'm not sure, maybe something's coming on or whatever. You know, and I say, oh my, that's too bad. Um, and we'll pray for you. But that's not suffering for Jesus, is it? When you get a flu, a cold, uh, I don't even, I wouldn't even say the coronavirus. Unless you uh, were in there doing a missionary work, trying to win the souls in Wuhan, and you picked up coronavirus. By the way, did you see in the news, the medical doctor, the Chinese medical doctor, who first tried to, to let, the world know about coronavirus and the Chinese government silenced him. Shut up, shut up. Don't say anything. That doctor now himself has coronavirus. Boy, that's a scary one, isn't it? It's about 500 people now that have died, something like that. And is it uh, 25,000? This is just in China that have been infected. And there's uh, 16 or 20 nations around the world that are we got, what, our fifth case here of coronavirus in Canada? Something like that. But uh, again, I, I think these things are helping to prepare people for the tribulation. And when I say prepare people for the tribulation, what I mean is a lot of people in the tribulation are not going to get saved. They're not interested in getting saved. And when Antichrist and his 666 comes along, they're going to say, yes, yes, this is what we want. And when the horrible conditions are happening, as we're going to learn in the weeks to come, God pours out his wrath upon them to get their stupid attention to turn around and repent. What do they do? They just bite their tongue and suffer and they blaspheme God. They say, well, we had it tough before. Remember back in 2020 with the coronavirus and we got through that, didn't we? Well, we'll get through this too. I think that that's some of the preparation. Boy, what a sad world this world is going to be in not the too distant future. It's best that we don't put our roots down too deep. What do you say? It's best that every day we be scanning the eastern sky. It could be today. He might come for me today. I think I'll live for Jesus one more day. And by the way, that's all it ever is, is just one day at a time. One day. So this day is soon drawing to a close. Um, in verse 11, we have uh, another proclamation here. Um, and I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. Now, how many does that equal? Anybody know? 10,000 times 10,000. 10 times 10 is what? 10 times 10 is what? 100. And 1,000 times 1,000 is what? A million. So 100 million. Hey, that was easy. 100 million. But it doesn't stop there. If, I, if I'm uh, reading this right, it says 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. And so there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of angels. There's well, well over a hundred million of them here. 
And this is uh, the angels now proclaiming his worthiness. That comes up in verse 12. Um, but something interesting here. Did you know they had the word million in the Bible? They had it back then. Here it says um, uh, 10,000 times 10,000. Why didn't they just say 100 million? Because they had the word million back then. Uh, I worked my way through that one. Sometimes I spend time chasing these rabbits down the little bunny holes. I think the reason why they didn't say 100 million, I think the reason why they said 10,000 times 10,000 is uh, for the emphasis, the emphasis of it, to bring out the greatness, the grandeur of this uh, number here. Um, it's only just a thought here, but I think that it emphasizes the tremendous greatness of the number of angels that God has at his disposal. So here's the proclamation in verse 12. So they say here with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive. Now you count them as we go through them. You count them and I'll ask you how many you came up with. Okay. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive number one power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. You got over a hundred million angels with loud voices proclaiming this. How many did you come up with? How many? Seven. There's the number seven again. I wonder if that is significant. But when you go to prayer, why don't you have Revelation chapter 5 verse 12 open in front of you so that you can pray, Oh Lord Jesus, I love you so much. You are worthy of power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Why don't you pray that back to the Lord? Because that's how the angels are worshiping Jesus. There's a little word to the wise here, folks. There's an insider's tip on how to worship the Lord at home or here in church and to repeat these words back to him. So these are all things that belong to a conquering king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now we come to verse 13. It says, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying, count them, okay? I'll say them, you count them. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. How many you come up with? Four. So there's four more you can do. Everything that has breath now makes a proclamation. A tremendous. First, we started with one angel. Now, essentially, everything that has breath is proclaiming glory to the Father and to the Son. And again, we see the Lord Jesus worshipped in an equal manner as the Father is worshipped. That tells us about the divinity of Jesus. Finally, we get to the end here. Verse 14, we have the final scene. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. And here you have worship. And you have the word amen also right there too. The four beasts and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Who is this him? 
Well, he lives forever and ever. Does the father live forever and ever? Yes or no? Yes. Does the son live forever and ever? Yes or no? Yes. Does the Holy Spirit live forever and ever? Yes or no? Yes. And so I think we're talking all three. The triune God. Now, God willing, next week, we're going to start in chapter 6. And this is where the fun begins. The, the book is going to be open. Jesus is going to start opening, you know, breaking the seals and bad things are going to start happening on earth. And because of these bad things, many people on earth will blame God. Now listen carefully. In the tribulation time, many, many, many people will absolutely blame God for the things happening on earth. And they'll curse him. Have you had any bad things happen to you? Has the devil ever put it into your head that God is at fault? It's God's fault. That if God really cared, he wouldn't allow this to happen. If God really loved you, he wouldn't have allowed you to suffer this loss or that pain. Have you ever thought thing, things like that? Because it's common. It's a common trick of the devil to get us, to try to get us, to blame our heavenly father. You know, the devil doesn't have any new tricks because his old ones work just as well today as they always have. But did you also know that for the believer in Jesus Christ, all things work together for good? Does all things only refer to the good things? Yes or no? No. All things refers to all things, the good and the not so good, right? If it's going to work for good, then it's something to be thankful for. One of the best things you and I can do when something bad happens to us is we can give thanks to God. And we do it by faith. You don't do it by feeling. When something happens to you that you consider very unpleasant or very bad, your first reaction is not to to say, oh, thank you, thank you, God. That's not your first reaction. Your first reaction might be, oh, no, why me? Oh, that might be your first reaction. But let it be your second reaction by faith to turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand why this happened, but I know that you make no mistakes in my life. By faith, I'm going to give you thanks, even though I don't understand it, I'm ready to cry but by faith, I give you thanks. When you do that, it chases the devil out of the room. When you do that, it gives God every reason to bless you. And so let's try and keep that in mind. Tonight and every day. If something bad should happen tonight, tomorrow, the next day, by faith. Let's get into God and say, Lord, you, you, only you know the reason, but I'm going to give you worship and thanks. I'm going to praise you for this and then see what you do with it. Let's close our eyes now for prayer.